had kind of half entertained the thought of um, asking Matt to uh, lead us in uh, the old hymn that speaks about will your anchor hold in the storms of life, it's, it's rousing. But um, after that one I thought, well, you know, <laughs> might have been uh, not quite as well known nor sung nearly as well. You've got to feel good after singing a song like that, even though it articulates a really... Um, well, it was articulated by an author who experienced great tragedy in life, but um, nevertheless came back to that anchor that the author of Hebrews speaks about, Jesus Christ, the anchor for our soul. It is well with my soul. One of the frustrations that I have uh, with the book of Hebrews is we don't know for sure who it was written to. The recipients are mysterious to us. There's some clues that they may well have, well, a strong clue that they were Jewish or at the very least they were well acquainted with, um, with the Jewish traditions and the Jewish law and the Jewish religion. One of the other clues that we have is that they were probably experiencing some kind of persecution and were at risk in the space of that persecution of apostatizing, of drifting from their faith, of failing morally under pressure. And so the author to this book sets out to bring much encouragement to them and from the very start uh, encourages them in their steadfastness. If you go back to chapter 2 verse 1 you'll see the recipients are urged there to pay more careful attention so that you don't drift away from what you have heard. Chapter 2 verse 18 uh, the focus there is on Jesus who suffered when he was tempted and is able to help those who are tempted so Jesus is able to journey with you through that which we you are struggling with chapter 3 verse 12 uh, do not have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God in verse 14 uh, we've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end to persevere to stick at it to make it to the finish with the confidence that we had at the start but when we come to chapter 5 verse 11 we get a bit of a clue to why the author has been so insistent on words of encouragement and words of perseverance and it would appear as we come to this passage that the problem is that they're just not maturing in their faith that these recipients, whoever they are, are a bit like the Christian who kind of drifts in and out of church, just holds faith uh, at arm's length a little bit, acknowledges something's going on in that space, acknowledges Jesus Christ perhaps, uh, but then just kind of is on the edge around the periphery kind of, the fringes of the church. The Christian who uh, rocks in from time to time just to keep enough connection to say, oh yes, I go to that church, uh, but not enough to actually be become uh, uh, challenged by the call to obedience that Jesus puts on their lives. The Christian who uh, has perhaps professed Jesus as Lord and stopped at that point. And this is a dangerous place to be in. And the author of the book of Hebrews makes that clear because when the pressure comes on, whether through temptation or under the threat or the experience of persecution, there is a grave risk of compromise the grave risk of making morally questionable decisions, the grave risk of, of that foundation upon which they stand becoming very shaky and not standing the test of suffering, strife or trouble. Just, I think it was last week, might have been the week before, one of our uh, young people came up to me 
and, and shared some exciting news. Now, this is in the context of these last few months where I've not been able to do much bike riding at all, so my fitness level's taken a big dive, my lazy level has taken a big climb, and uh, things aren't looking good on that front. But not to worry, because I can still get up and down these stairs okay. Well, now I can. Uh, and we've always got the ramp. And, uh, you know, I've got enough fitness to get me through life. No stress. But when Jacob Herbie it was, came and said to me, guess how many kilometres I rode on Saturday? He said, I rode 100 kilometres. I wanted to say to him, fantastic, great work, Jacob. Well done. Let me encourage you. And inside I was fearing that he might say, what about if we rode together next week 100 kilometres? <laughs> because there's no way that I could do that. <laughs> I've got a week to get ready. Half-baked faith, and that's what the author of the Hebrews wants to say, half-baked faith is like half-baked fitness. It will be shown up for what it is. It will be demonstrated as inadequate. It won't stand up to the pressure. And this is a warning that we need to hear as much as the recipients back in the days of the author of Hebrews needed to hear it too. If you're comfortable, if you're comfortable this morning, and I don't mean in terms of the chairs and the warmth, if you're just cruising along in your faith, you need to hear this message. And as I said earlier, the author rebukes them for their laziness. In my earlier translation, the NIV, it said, uh, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. I imagine that would have got their attention. It would be a bit like um, him saying, you know, you're just thick. In fact, the original language is quite, um, is quite strong. It could be understood as saying, you're sluggish. You are negligent you are culpable even in your slowness you are responsible for this perilous situation that you are in because you've been lazy in this space and the urgency of the problem is addressed in verse 12 let me just take you there he says to them by now you should be able to teach others you should be able to lead others in faith you should be able to disciple others but you're still in a place where you need someone to teach you these elementary truths of God's word all over again your spiritual infants, the author says, is a bit like a 35-year-old who's never got out of kids' church. No reflection on kids' church. But it's just not normal, is it? You'd think there was something significantly wrong in that space. And this is what the author says. You're just not growing in your faith. Anyone who lives on milk still being an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now, there I think what we should understand that teaching about righteousness is not just about right living. It's actually uh, it's how to live in the, in the context of a struggle or persecution or when your faith is put under pressure. Because if you're not living as a mature Christian and your faith is put under pressure, you are at risk. And given... Um, this strong public rebuke, uh, and rebukes can be strong, um, it's curious that the author rather beautifully and very pastorally turns to an encouragement in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6. And the language you might notice here, have a look at chapter 6 verse 1, he says, therefore let us, 
let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. And then in verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. Don't you love how the author actually puts himself into that place? We together need to grow in maturity. This is not just something for you to go and do. Let's do this as a community. You might expect, uh, given their spiritual immaturity, the author would take them back to the basics. And he lists some of the basics in this passage. You'll see there in chapter 6, verses uh, 2, captures a lot of those. And it's almost as though the author's saying, we're not going to go back to this. Those things are important, but it's almost like you're eating at the children's table. Now it's time to eat from the table with the adults. You don't forget or dispense those things. Those things are important. Like learning the alphabet. Who remembers their alphabet? (laughs) Sounds like a stupid question, but it's not because you learn the alphabet so that you can learn to read. Once you learn to read, you actually use the alphabet, but you don't go back to learn the alphabet again, do you? We don't need to go, I hope we don't need to go back to the alphabet. Say, what comes after G, A, B, C, G? Occasionally we might when we're trying to put books back on the library shelf or something like that. But those basic things, they sit there, they're important. We don't lose them, but we grow in maturity. Foundational theology works like that. And some of these things that the author mentions here are very much the foundations of the theology that he wants them to grow and build on. It doesn't want them to be stuck there. Let me just take um, a little bit of time to talk about um, rebuking one another because this is one of those topics that comes up in conversation with Christian people from time to time and we've probably all experienced it in one form or another. Some of us may have even been challenged to do it, i.e. to go to someone and say, listen, I'm a bit concerned about this or whatever it might be. How is it done well and what might we see from this passage that helped us understand how to do it well? I remember on occasions quite a few years ago, this would be going back uh, probably mid-late 1990s, I was preaching at the Horsham Church of Christ one night and I arrived really early to sit down and prepare for the evening and there was a great youth band and worship team who were being led by their worship leader, the guy who worked for the church, preparing the songs. They were doing a terrific job, uh, lots of noise and music and activity and all sorts of stuff. And then right in the middle of it, the guy stopped them and he said, listen up, hear what's happening in this space. You're all going off doing this, you're doing that, you're doing the other thing. It's all about you, it's not about Jesus. And I was sitting there kind of hoping I could hide under the seats (laughs) because it was a little bit awkward. But I just watched how that progressed and I watched how he did that and I watched how it was received. And it was really clear in that space that this person had a very strong relationship with the young people with whom he was working. When he spoke to them, he did it in a way that was well-timed. It was before the service, not during the service. Uh, (laughs) Would have been a lot more awkward if it had been during the service was done with the right motives. He didn't shame anyone, didn't say, you, you. Um, He talked in the same kind of language that the author that Hebrews uses. He said, we, we need to, we are doing this. Uh, It came from a place of great love and it came with great encouragement to correct. And I thought, what a great example. 
difficult that it must have been and challenging that it would have been to do it and to receive it. And truth-telling, accountability and rebuking one another are an important aspect of Christian life together and yet we often do it so badly, don't we? We do it so badly because we don't like to receive it, we don't like being corrected. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like it when someone says, oh, I wasn't so pleased about this or didn't like what you did. You, what's the first reaction? Defensive, you know. You see the body language, Jim's got it happening down here now. Um, the, the arms are crossed, put a barrier up. But more than that, we don't like to do it either sometimes. Even if the Spirit might be prompting us, we don't want to break relationship with people. We think, well, maybe someone else could address it. Oh, here's a better plan. I'll go and tell someone else to tell someone else. <laughs> it's always a good strategy. Or is it a good strategy? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul said, we're to speak the truth in love and in that context grow in maturity. But there are some cautions. Let me just give you a couple of them. Uh, as I've been thinking about them this week. First thing, if we're going to speak into someone else's life, we need to be prepared to allow others to speak into our lives because none of us are perfect. If we're not prepared for it to be reciprocated, then we shouldn't go there. It's very easy to tell other people what's wrong with them and go about picking faults in others. I think Jesus might have said something about this. What was it? Something about a log in our own eyes? You know that scripture? Second observation, we shouldn't go there if there's a whiff of wrong motives on our part. You know, one of the... Let me just go down another line here for a second. One of the most helpful things that I've learned over the years is to actually ask the question, whenever something's going on, whether it's someone's said something to me or I'm feeling something, ask, why am I feeling this? What's actually causing this response in me? Now, why, why is my body telling me these things? What's triggering me? And that actually helps me uh, take a little bit of time to reflect and then ask, well, actually, is it because it's pushing a button or whatever it might be? There's a lot to be said for being a little bit of self-aware in this space. And this is not some kind of pseudo-psychological claptrap. This is actually just knowing ourselves and understanding ourselves. We shouldn't go there. We shouldn't go to that place of rebuking someone else if our motives are wrong. Why do I feel I need to do this? Is, is it um, because I'm coming from a place of brokenness or resentment or hurt feelings or revenge? If those are the reasons, then we need to park it and park it in a hurry. And it's helpful too, I think, in this space sometimes to check with someone else we trust before we go and talk to somebody else. And not just someone we know is going to agree with us, but someone who can be objective. The third observation, um, and this is an important one, one of the least obeyed commands of Jesus, if we're going to have a problem with another person, deal with the other person, not with 14 other persons. You know, Jesus said, if you've been offended, uh, go to the person. If there's something you need to deal with, deal with it with the person. If that doesn't work, there's other steps. But not to my friends, not to my cell group, not to all these others to gain a posse of followers, but to deal with it as it should be done, one-on-one, -on -one, in a loving, caring environment. Fourth observation, um, think through what we're going to say. Doing things off the cuff is a recipe for disaster. 
fifth observation. Think about the timing. I've told you the story of a dear friend in the church in Warrnambool who, uh, who typically reserved all of her complaints and observations until just before the service started. <laughs> Bless her. And she'd walk through the door and you'd get it just in those moments before you went up on the platform. And it's, it's a heavy enough load already to carry without having all of this lumbered on top. And so I just smile and say, thank you, won't name the name, and I uh, think, Lord, help me not to kill this person this week. <laughs> so think about the timing. Uh, and like the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, and we see it here in Hebrews, the, the author here offers some really helpful, practical instructions. Here's the way forward. So there's just a few words about rebuke in the context of the Christian environment. Let's move on to verses um, four to six because some of you have been banging around in churches for years will be desperately wanting to know what I'm going to do with verses four to six. Um, this passage which uh, some would want to, uh, to say, centres in on the question of can a Christian lose their faith? Do you want to do that? <laughs> All right. Let's, let's see if we can do this well. Let's, uh, let's make some observations first from the book of Hebrews to lay a foundation. First observation, this is always helpful, think about the context. The context of uh, the, the book of Hebrews is the intention the author has not to do a theological treatise on eternal security, uh, probably not even to address the question of whether a Christian can lose their faith or not, but absolutely to encourage Christians who are lazy in their faith, and I've already said that. So that's really clear through this book. The author of Hebrews wants to motivate Christians who have become lazy or who have become a bit uh, slack in their faith or who have perhaps got stuck in those fundamental things. He wants them to grow. That's important to understand that he wants, uh, he wants them to abide in Jesus. He loves them. He wants them to grow in Christ. He wants them to participate in the full life of Christ. So his concern is more pastoral than theological. Um, in fact, before we go any further, if we wanted to address the question of whether a Christian can lose their salvation or not, um, you can look at this passage, but we need to look beyond this passage as well. And you need to ask a whole lot of other questions uh, in addition to just the questions raised from this passage. So questions like, uh, you know, Paul says, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. If indeed I am a new creation, can I be made an unnew creation? Is that possible? Or if we have been redeemed and justified by God, can we be unredeemed and unjustified by God? Because he's the one who'd have to do that. Or if I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, does God actually give refunds, to put it crassly? So there's a whole raft of questions that surround this question. So trying to address it from one passage is a little irresponsible, perhaps. The question, too, of whether the author is talking about true Christians in this passage or people who look like Christians in this passage is also a notoriously difficult question to answer. Have a look at verse 4. Uh, for He says, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. What does that mean? We don't know. The author's 
using a term without defining the term, who have tasted the heavenly gift. What does that mean? Well, it sounds like they've had some experience of the Holy Spirit. Again, the author is using the term without defining the term. Have shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. There's some significant things going on there. Not, not, not small matters at all, but they could be understood as the experience a Christian would have, or perhaps not. Some of the language there might give us a clue. Tasted the heavenly gift. Well, there's a difference between tasting and feasting, isn't there? Now, I'm drawing a distinction that the author probably doesn't want us to draw. But the point is, it's hard for us to know exactly what the author was talking about. He has used the terms without defining the terms. There are some assumptions that the author of the passage does work that are helpful to us. And the first one is this. Repentance is foundational Christian teaching across this book and, in fact, across the scriptures. So repentance is an important element of, of our faith. Turning away from sin. Second thing we'd say about that is true repentance can only be expressed in the shadow of the cross of Jesus because there's no other sacrifice for sin, right? You can repent, but you can't repent to anyone else. There's only one place, only one person where Christian repentance, where true repentance can actually be found. And that, of course, is in Christ Jesus. The author highlights this. If you want to jump across into Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 18, um, where those who have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice of sin. That, Jesus did it. There's no one else. True repentance can only uh, be found there. And so it makes sense, and the author will argue this, if you reject Jesus, repentance is impossible because there's nowhere else to go. You don't go to Jesus. Where else are you going to go? You're going to try Buddha. He's not going to work for you. You're going to try Joseph Smith from the Mormons. He's not going to do it for you. There's only one place where true repentance can be found. If you say no to Jesus, this is what the author wants to say. If you say no to Jesus, if you're in a place where you're saying no to Jesus, there's no other court of appeal. There's no one else. There's no options whatsoever. And in verses 4 to 6, and this is where it gets a little bit sticky, in verses 4 to 6 the author says it's impossible, that's a very strong word, for those who fall away, again uses a term not fully explained, for those who fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now the grammar that sits underneath this is really helpful and as I've said to you before, grammar is not my favourite subject. It's the only subject I failed at Teachers College. Three times. Have I told you this? There are certain things we had to do to pass the course. Math skills test, stuff like that. Grammar skills test. So we did a whole term of grammar stuff and then a test at the end. It was quite complicated. Adverbial clauses of stupidity and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I failed it spectacularly. No worries. You get another chance. Studied it again. Tested it again. Failed it spectacularly. All right, we'll give you one more chance. Went away and studied it. Came back, failed it a third time. And the lecturer, bless his heart, said, 
I think we'll just ignore the grammar skills test as a prerequisite for you. Let's move on. <laughs> but there's something really helpful in the background underneath this text in the Greek grammar. You see, the author uses uh, the simple uh, uh, tense when he's talking about these things, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, these things uh, in the simple tense, as though you know, they can be experienced. Then he sh changes te uh, the tense to the present tense when he says um, you will not be able to repent uh, unless you stop. If, uh, if you don't stop doing these things, sorry, while you're doing these things you won't be able to repent. So these are the things, understand them simply, but as long as you are uh, crucifying the Son of God, you will be unable to repent. In other words, while you are doing these things, there's nothing you can do. It's impossible. Which leaves the door open just a little bit to say, if, if you do stop crucifying the Son of God, then it is possible to repent. The grammar allows that door to be open. It's a bit like this. Let's use an analogy. Um, this is a bad analogy, but it tells you more about me than the analogy, probably. Um, you're at a party, and it's one of those parties where it's got beautiful things, and you've enjoyed pavlova, and you've enjoyed sponge cake, and you've enjoyed trifle, the big three. <laughs> it's kind of like the holy trinity of desserts. <laughs> But it's impossible for you to enjoy those things if you have still got your mouth full of marshmallows, right? You can't eat sponge cake with a mouth full of marshmallows. You can't eat cheesecake with a mouth full of... But if you empty your mouth full of marshmallows, then you could come back to those things. Maybe it's working a little bit like that in this passage. The grammar allows that. And this perhaps then is where... Um, the book of Hebrews can contribute to this vexed question of eternal security, mindful of course again that this is not the only place where this is spoken about in the Bible and we're only looking at Hebrews chapter 6 um, for our uh, information at the moment. One of the major concerns expressed across this book is for those whose faith appears to be inauthentic because of a lack of perseverance. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, the author said, We are his house if we hold on. 3.14, we have come to Christ if we hold firmly to the end. In chapter 4, if you were here a few weeks ago when I spoke about Sabbath rest, um, God, uh, the author was concerned for those who seemed to have fallen short of entering into that rest, those who had not combined true faith with obedience. And one of the key um, things that flows through this book is that our relationship with God results in obedience to God. And if the obedient lifestyle is absent, then the authenticity of the relationship with God is also questionable. There's this connection between what's happening now and what happens at the end. And salvation, if I can illustrate it like this, salvation sort of sits on a continuum. We're here and we're living in this space and it will ultimately be realised at the end. But there's a connection between what happens here and what happens here. And to know that this is real, you have to look here to know. Is that making sense? If what appears to be salvation in the present doesn't persevere to the end, then it's demonstrated to have been inadequate. Even if the association with the Christian community or the action or the life of the believer looked for all the world to be real. 
it's not if it doesn't actually make it to the end. And it wasn't that the disciple back here was being intentionally fraudulent. It was just that they hadn't been fully changed by God's power. They were just doing Christianity in a way. If you go outside Hebrews, um, you have a look at somewhere like 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John actually said um, of those who did not persevere in the face of trials, he said, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. You know, they were in with us, but they didn't remain, they didn't make the distance. And if we jump a little further in our passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, the author uses an agricultural metaphor, which I think is quite helpful in explaining this, uh, where he talks about two types of land. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it and produces a crop is wonderful. It's good and a blessing for the farmer. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. Now, which land did the rain fall on? Both. One produced a good crop, one produced thorns and thistles. How do you know which was the good land? It's the one that produced the crop. It's the one that persevered through to the end. I think the Hebrew author, the author of Hebrews is, is uh, driving us into that space. So uh, this idea, um, let me just go back a little bit. The idea that those who have fallen or have fallen away in the book of Hebrews may well have expressed the characteristics of genuine Christians, those things that we saw described for us there in verses 4, 5 and 6. But they haven't borne fruit. And so the question is asked, were they genuine Christians in the first place? And the idea doesn't seem to be supported by the author because the ultimate evidence for the legitimacy of their faith is in their fruitfulness, whether that is manifest in their obedient perseverance to the end. And so I'm just going to throw this out. You can argue with it if you like, and some will. According to the author of Hebrews, a true Christian can't lose their faith because a true Christian perseveres until the end. A true Christian perseveres in their faith. Let's park that and come back to something that we might really grasp, and this is the significant, the significant application. Some concluding observations. First one is this, if we're lazy in our faith, if we're not diligent in growing towards maturity, we are placing ourselves in grave danger. That's perhaps the greatest take-home message of this passage. It was the abiding cause of concern for the author when he wrote to the recipients here. The warning that was given to them perhaps ought to serve as a warning to us who have drifted from the church, whether we have drifted through COVID, whether we've stagnated in our faith, whether we've disconnected from our small group, whatever it might be, wherever our, our laziness, wherever our inattention has been, there's a warning here. And uh, if you look at the end of verse 8, land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless is and in danger of being cursed in the end, it will be burned. That's a strong warning. Second observation we might make is this, participation in the Christian community doesn't equate to salvation. Just because you sit in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born into a Christian family makes you a Christian. 
Ultimately, that's determined on your relationship with Christ. Another observation, true spirituality cannot be evaluated apart from fruitful faithfulness in the Christian life. And Jesus said this, by your fruit you will know them. We are God's workmanship and have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And faith without works, as James says, is deeply suspect. And so the last question, why wrestle with this stuff? Why take time out of your Sunday where you could be outside enjoying the sun, which I think might have disappeared for the time being, and sit here and engage with this which bends our brains? Well, first of all, because we need to be exhorted to faithfulness. We need to be encouraged. And it's good for us to be in a place where we are encouraged. But second, and this is really significant, uh, because we make decisions based on our thinking and our thinking is framed by what we believe and so it's really significant to understand what we believe to know what we believe and to be grounded in those things our beliefs shape what we decide how we relate to others how we relate to our world and so what we believe what the scripture teaches is actually really significant and that's why we wrestle with the hard passages. We don't skip over them. We don't take it easy. Let me encourage you to drive deeply. This book of Hebrews is hard for us to cover just by preaching our way through it. You need to take a deep dive into it. Get involved with a small group. Wrestle with the word of God and let it shape you. Let's uh, pause and pray. Um, I'm going to hand over to Roderick next week to bring us back to Melchizedek and uh, we'll see how we go in that space. Something to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the challenge of your word, even where it's difficult, the challenge that was given to the recipients of this author. Uh, not to be lazy is a challenge we need to hear too, not to sit like puddings in church just absorbing stuff but um, to be active to be growing to be seeking maturity to be looking for ways to be extended to to use our minds to use our gifts to your glory god again we thank you for your word and as we finish today we pray that you'll help us to put into practice what we have been thinking about whether it means being encouragers of others, helping to sharpen others up in a manner that will build them up and encourage them, or being sharpened up ourselves. Lord, help us to be open to what your spirit would do with your church today, we pray. Grant that we might have ears to hear what your spirit's saying to us. God, we give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.